Hi, this is Helen. And this is Jessie. And you're listening to Asian Bitches Down Under. And this is our final episode of the year 2023. And it is, what, what's the date today? 22nd of December. I think either today or yesterday was the winter solstice. Solstice of the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah. What is that? I think it's for those cold, who live cold south and- day of the year up okay. in the north. Like we uh-huh. have in the south, southern hemisphere, which is somewhere around July or August. Right, right. Yeah, because I just look at my Facebook memories this morning and mm-hmm. last year, today or yesterday that mm-hmm. we were in the Tangyuan. Which is oh, not yeah. solstice for us, but I have this, you know, like kind of like a rituals that I just have it because it's the coldest year, you know, in the northern hemisphere when we were growing up. Yeah, so yeah. I some tangyuan, the rice balls. Even though it's like blazing hot outside. <laughs> Even though it's blazing hot outside, yes. And there are bushfires <laughs> in WA. <laughs> to keep in the traditionals. Yeah, okay. Um, what would you like to start? today well um i guess um what i've been really kind of eager to talk about is this thing i've seen this year because this mm-hmm. year will this is, episode will be a wrap about stuff we've seen and heard and read this year um sort of our favorites um i i was just telling helen before we started recording that um i still haven't um, unfortunately this year uh, there hasn't been a book that um, shook me and made me fall in love with it so deeply in the way that Gabrielle Zevin's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow did mm-hmm. um, last year or the year before. I came out maybe 12 to 18 months ago. Um, so that's been kind of depressing. I kind of um, am so, e- I'm so like starved of narratives that make me just grip me so hard and stay with me for a long time. Um, and I think it's, um, I think it's because um, I haven't been as proactive as I used to be in going out and searching for books that speak to me. Uh, so this is one of my goals for 2024 is to dedicate more intentional time to reading books that um, perhaps, you know, align with my interests more deliberately. I think I'd like to do that. Mm. Uh, and we were talking before about the way in which we chart our consumption. So Helen has a list that she makes of the, all the books that she reads in her diary, mm. whereas I don't. Um, and every year, at the beginning of every year, I have like a notebook lying around and I think, okay, this is the one where I'm going to write down all the books that I've read. But my issue is that um, I, I often don't finish books mm-hmm. because life is too short. I have never, I've never felt the need to finish something that I don't enjoy a hundred percent. And so I guess that complicates things because then I forget about the list or like I, I don't know what the benchmark is for a book making it onto the list. You know, if I've read uh, 280 out of the 300 pages, does that qualify for the list? So anyway, long story short, um, I actually do make a list of all the movies I make, uh, mm-hmm. read. Okay. Uh, I, 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 at least I'm more intentional about writing it. And it could be because writing about it, it could be because I'm actually ri- writing a book right now about um, filmmakers, about mm-hmm. female filmmakers. And 
uh, I always try and write notes about every movie I most movies I'd say uh, that I watch. Mm-hmm. And the movie, the thing I wanted to talk about this in this segment and um, to kick things off is the sort of trend of um, male biopics that we have seen this year, and the way in which okay, yep. the the story of their wives are often kind of Mm-hmm. very unsubtly slid into the narrative and so for instance um if we t- start off the by um talking about Oppenheimer which came out in July there was quite a big chunk of the narrative that focused on Emily Blunt's character the wife and also the mistress played by um Florence Pugh did you see that movie no I know the movie oh, okay. you're going to mention the next five minutes and I don't think I've seen any of them Oppenheimer. okay yeah so the the other movies I was going to mention are Napoleon Yes, that's what I thought. Yep. Can and I guess my, the last one? Oh, there's actually two more. Oh, okay. Can I guess one of them then? Yeah, of course. <laughs> talk about um, Bernstein. Is that my story? Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Yeah. Perfect, Helen. And then finally, Ferrari, which oh, is starring okay. Adam Driver. Oh, okay. I, I don't know about that one. Okay. Okay. Well, so that's so that's coming out in January in oh, Australia. Okay. So that's probably yeah. The posters are coming out now. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of the 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 issue I have with these movies is that often um, their wives are played by a list actors. Mm-hmm. Like so, for instance, you've got Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh playing sidelined wives in Chris Nolan's movie. In Napoleon, you have Vanessa Kirby, probably less of a well-known star, but still like tremendously acclaimed. Mm-hmm. Maestro, you have Kerry Mulligan, of course. Mm-hmm. And do you want to guess who Ferrari's wife is oh, played by? I'm familiar with that film, so I don't know anything about it. I don't know, is she, I'm assuming that must be a Caucasian. Is someone that Italian. I, oh, I don't know any Italian Act. Well, this actor is actually not Italian, but she's in the role anyway. It's um, Penelope Cruz. What? Really? Yeah. Okay. Penelope Cruz with Adam Driver. Okay. That sounds I know. It's just like, it's like the world, like the greatest <laughs> actress in our generation with like a toy boy. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't say Adam Driver's a toy boy. I mean, he's obviously can act, but his shtick of masculinity is like, mm, I don't know. I kind of shrug it off. He's a very serious actor. Uh, so I think what I have an issue with in all these biopics is the sense that um, these narratives focus, I mean, they're all, let's not kid ourselves, they're all about the men because, um, yeah. number one, look at the title. Yeah. Like every single title, Oppenheimer, no, not Napoleon, Maestro, Ferrari, refer to the singular man, yes. right? Let's not can, can, Let's not pretend it's anything else. Um, the posters are often of just the guy itself, himself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the way in which uh, these films have been sort of both marketed, talked about, and also the content within the film, uh, it seems to want us to believe that the story is often about the greatness, the marriage. Oh, the marriage. The ma- yeah, yeah, like the marriage of uh, the guy. Say that, and also the of their career or something like that. Oh, no, no. It's So um, I think maybe 30 years ago these biopics would have maybe just focused on the man and their career. But it seems that these days, for whatever reason, uh, men have started to make films, biopics about these other great men that they look up to 
and sort of um, wanted to feel like they've wanted to add in the element of the wife mm-hmm. as if to as if it was the only way in which we could humanize these men or sort of like remind us that there was always a suffering wife in the sidelines yes as though as though the suffering wives were really the sort of um the key reason or like they were so vital to the sort of not just the success of the men but also the humanity of these men that you know we've all studied these men in high school but like these these stories i think they're trying to sort of carve out the humanity or like the personable side of these men mm-hmm. so for instance um in maestro there's quite a lot of scenes where we see um leonard bernstein interact with his three children and we have a lot of these scenes where they they are uh, framed in a way that show him as the family man mm-hmm. and anyone who's ever read half you know half a wikipedia entry on bernstein or has ever known him or like studied him or anything know, know that you know un- he was very unapologetically uh, promiscuous he was completely dedicated to his artwork um to his art um he was never around um his family were kind of like on the side um it was very peripheral and it's almost like the only way we can engage with these men these historical figures these days is through the lens of them being like the family man or you know like the the head of the family and i just i just have a weird issue with that mm-hmm. i think i'm on the same boat with you about the idea that these movies trying to humanize these male historical figures by putting them as a family man even though that we know that they might have they have done you know things atrociously inhumane or i don't know you know maybe just you know not you can't really justify it um but these movies have trying to beautify them in the way um to make them more human but at the same time exactly. deny what they have done that is very harsh to perhaps the people that loved them or they loved and i really hate the way that i don't know if it's in english that they have a similar phrase um when i was growing up i used to hear that uh this phrase in chinese 成功的男人背后都有一个something女人 like yeah or men always have a dedicated or supportive woman behind him but yeah the- always is he always places that the woman as a supplementary uh property not even a, mm. uh, not even humanizing the woman to build up this successful male character but we never remember the name of the woman do exactly. we you know we know josephine but that's it you know mm. Do mm. actually remember the names of the woman that oppenheimer has interacted with no we don't you know does history remember um bernstein's wife or whoever that he slept around with you know no we mm. don't so at the end of the day the history is being told by the people who holds authority and power to to i can't try to find a word to kind of remember the one that they think is the greatest at the end of the day again it's the man who dominates the his the space of history yeah yeah and i think that um 
what I've seen that's so interesting is, you know, like these are obviously these four male characters are obviously, you know, among history's most significant and sort of ubiquitous um, in a sense, um, men, you know, like um, Leonard Bernstein is probably uh, sort of in the last 100 years, the most important Amer uh, anywhere, not just American, important conductor or important influencer of um, classical music. Uh, I guess the same with Ferrari, you know, he changed the landscape of cars and F1. Napoleon, obviously, we all know, like, no, who doesn't know Napoleon? Like, your daughter is 10 years old. Do you think she knows who Napoleon is? Do you think they've covered that character uh, in school? I have to ask her. Yeah. He just, yeah. But she did know, then, she did know about Josephine. Remember that we were talking about Napoleon during one of our outings, and she goes, oh, is that the one, is that the, the, the guy? Short French dude. French, she's a French I think, yeah, I think that's how I came across. Yeah, first time when I heard about Napoleon, what made him? What what was like? What was the most sort of his tidbit was that the fact that he was short. Oh. but then we looked up. He's one hundred and sixty-eight. I know he's, he's not, not actually exactly short at all. No, it's <laughs> funny. It's very funny. Um, yeah, but I think what I find interesting is that um, you mean all these directors that we've talked about and Chris Nolan, Ridley Scott, Michael Mann, um, they're like, you know, the most important directors of our generation in the last 50, 60 years. Bradley Cooper is more of a newcomer, but he's obviously trying to uh, set himself the goal of being mm -hmm. like a serious male director mm -hmm. um, and by tackling, you know, classical music's most important figure in the last 100 years. Obviously, you know, these men... I think I think uh, watching Bradley Cooper act as Leonard Bernstein, it really just made me think. Um, at the end of the day, Bradley Cooper just wanted to be Leonard Bernstein. Like it, like oh, I re I listened to this video uh, on YouTube where a woman just says um, that he is basically getting off by trying to imitate Leonard Bernstein, mm -hmm. and it's um, a vanity project she said, which I kind of kind of completely agree with because you see the way in which he appears on the screen and the way he's trying to mimic the way in which Leonard Bernstein spoke. It was, it's kind of very clearly just like Bradley Cooper wanting to be Leonard Bernstein. So, yeah. and it made me think about like the way in which it's, it made me think about sort of universally the way in which I think I think what differs what the life of a man compared to the life of a woman. This is where it really differs. It's the sense that um, there are possibilities for you. So if you grow up as a white man, there are like infinite numbers of white men in history who you can look up to. So if yeah. you're a scientist, there's like so many male scientists you can look up to. If you're a um, musician, so many male musician conductors that may, who look like you, you can look up to. Absolutely. Any kind of um, any kind of industry that you want to do as a white man. There are like infinite or even just a, any colored man. There are so many different types of people who have already done what you perhaps want to do that you can, you know, aspire to. It's yeah. like you have a limitless number of um, pathways, right? Mm -hmm. But like me as a woman, I just thought to myself, hell, I was like, okay, um, I'm a woman. Let's just even forget the fact that I'm Asian for the moment. Like, and I thought if I was a director, 
and there's a vanity project that I want to make. You know, there's like a woman in history that I want to play, like like the equivalent of Bradley Cooper wanting to be Leonard Bernstein, right? I was like, who, who is a woman in history who I would love to be? And I'm like, even right now, I'm like, I can't think of a single woman in history who I would love to be. Mm. You know what I mean? There's like, there's not been a woman who I'm like, hmm, that's like an amazing thing that she did. She changed everything. I would love to play her. Maybe like um, the closest I can think of is maybe like um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Like she really, truly, so like, you know, Felicity, um, whatever that woman's name is, I forget her name, but um, she played RB, RBD, um, RBG, <laughs> uh, a few, yeah, a few, um, yes, the, what was yeah. it, the, law, the right to sex or something? Or, or I forget that name where Army Hammer was the um, husband. Yeah, so I think that would be pretty incredible to play like a, but even that, it's like she was a judge. She was a lawmaker. Like how sexy can that be? You know, whereas like, Bradley Cooper, he grew up and he wanted to be a conductor. He became an actor and now he can actually like actually, actually like physically and also just in every way embody and pretend to be the person he wanted to be when he grew up. Mm-hmm. And like for me, there's like nobody I can think of throughout history, women who have done something that I have like think, oh, I would love to play them. At the equal level as Bernstein, Napoleon. Or- exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. can you, oh, maybe Hillary Clinton? If there was a movie about Hillary yes. Clinton, maybe I would like to play her. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But it's sad to think of, even if it's for female, that we can try to come up with a white female, white woman. But can you think of an Asian? Of you know, course not. Yeah. About, not even talking about Chinese, not about. Asian historical figure that is at the similar level of Napoleon, Oppenheimer. No, no. Because women didn't create history. Yeah, I mean, we can, but then again, if we did, the thing is that the history records don't prolong that kind of discussions for those female historical figures. I mean, my daughter's reading Rebel Girls, you know, there's a lot of female historical figures that I just learned when I'm in my 30s I'd never heard before I was oh totally yeah and just right now we're having discussion this discussion the two female Asian or maybe Chinese historical figures that I can think of one is probably more of a fictional you know Mulan because we know through (laughs) Disney even Mulan and the other one is um Wu Zetian which is like the Chinese empress I think early Qing dynasty that she she <laughs> was empire back then but even then she had a lot of negative um stories yeah all through all, dramas you know in the yeah. 80s so I can't really think of right now immediately of a Asian <laughs> yeah totally that's really sad yeah to be honest yeah i know and um and like i guess the uh, most famous asian i can think of off the top of my head is uh the actress um from hollywood may may what was her name may wong is a one may wong yeah that's it yeah the silent film actress yeah Yeah. so she and then she you know she had a shit life 
Yeah. Um, she 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 wasn't able to be cast in anything or taken seriously in Hollywood because of her Asian face. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but but I think what the antidote to all of this is like movies like Hidden Figures. Mm-hmm. You know, um, movies like that that focus on the people who have forgot who have been forgotten in history. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, that was about three African American women, but it still managed to make a biopic about women who you know we wouldn't have known about at all like if if that movie wasn't made i would never have heard about those katherine johnson you know for instance we wouldn't know about them in our school textbooks you know exactly history textbooks would not teach oh yeah exactly yeah (sighs) that's a sadness of the reality yeah, and also I think because feminism is still so so nascent, like it's complete, it's very very, it's very new. I mean, you yeah. know, when you measure the civilization, the length of civilization, feminism is still very new. And so, if anyone was going to make a movie about any woman in history, ninety nine point nine percent of it, um, well, the women that you're going to draw from, are going to be women who have been disenfranchised, marginalized, neglected, abused. Like, because, you know, literally up until 100 years ago, I mean, even now, you know, let's not kid ourselves, um, women's stories are not, women's lives are not as in, enriching and and as expansive as men's. Yeah. And, like, it goes back to my point before, which is that, you know, um, if you're a man growing up in this world, you have so many different men who have done so many incredible things to have made the world the way that it has, that you have role models. You have people who you can aspire to be. And like for women, there's like, who can I aspire to be? Oh, I'll just play the suffering wife or like Marie Antoinette who had her head chopped off when she was 35 or whatever. Um, I don't think she was 35, but you know, it's just like um, the only examples we have of any kind of significant women who have been remembered in history are women who have died prematurely, suffered at the hands of men um, and had a shitty life. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, why would I want to watch a movie about that? Why would I want to play a woman who doesn't have joy in her life? Or not just joy, but, like, doesn't get to... What kind of aspirations that young girls can Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, doesn't have the capacity, doesn't have the capacity or the means to go off and do what she wants to do, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. When you were mentioning, um, you just mentioned Marie Antoinette, uh, remind me, um, Catherine Chan's book that I read last year, Joan, John of Arc. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like a, um, it's a, it's a, it's a um, biography, but written in a fictional way where there's a lot of reimagined, um, reimagined narratives throughout the book. It was a, it was one of the most memorable books that I read last year, but it also, like you said, you know, even John of Arc is something that I'd like to see to be made into a very epic movie. And I, I, I know that there has been movies and dramas being, you Lily know. Lily Sobieski. Yeah, of John of Arc. But I, I really want to see something that is more positive. But then again, you can't really go against what had happened. In exactly. History. We can't whitewash history. Uh, yeah, she, she had died <laughs> very young. Oh my god! Again, you know? Exactly. That's probably why people don't make movies about women, because it's yeah. just too depressing. It's too right? depressing, and yeah. it's not. It's not something that you want to 
aspire. It's not. It's not something that you can aspire to. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know what? I had. Um, I work like at the moment. I'm writing the script for the pilot of my first book, and I'm working with this amazing screenwriter, movie guy who's been in the industry for decades, and he said something to me that um, sort of a few times while we were in the writers' room. Which I always remember, which I always keep with me. Which is that he said, "Um, at the end of the day, remember that your main character, mm. your audiences want to be him or her. You got to write a character where your your viewers want to be that person." Yeah. And so, like, like that's probably why we don't write. Like, not just that we don't have a lot of women protagonists, but because we 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 can't because. The reality is that women throughout history have led lives that have been full of suffering. And why would you want to, like, you wouldn't make a movie where the protagonist is like just a suffering woman because who wants to be that? You know? Yeah. And and it makes me think like all these male, like coming back to Oppenheimer, Napoleon, Maestro, Ferrari, like in a way, it's like great. We're like sort of allowing the story of the wives to come into these narratives right but at the end of the day like even me as a woman and not just a white woman but an asian woman even me watching oppenheimer napoleon maestro i haven't seen ferrari but i will um even sitting through those films at the end of the day i don't want to be their wives i want to be napoleon i want to be oppenheimer i want to be the one who's creating things that help change the world you know i want to be the one at the front of the podium in front of an orchestra of 150 musicians i want to be on the sideline like Carrie Mulligan is. I don't want to be the no, I don't want to be the woman like the wife standing on the side of the stage like clapping and like admiring my husband. Like I want to be the goddamn fucking conductor, you know? But then you'll be talking about Kate Blanchard's um character Tar. Yeah, who yeah, but she's like not but real. Yeah, she's not real, but it's trying to create a character. But then again, when you're trying to create a, a powerful female character, she's, she's always fucked up yeah she's always been fucked yeah. up she's i mean yeah she's awful character isn't it yeah it's not, it's not the character that you want young girls to become yeah i know and like it made me kind of in a sort of weird way i was actually really angry by the fact that um tar was made um and that that kate blanchett like the female the the conductor the main character of the story was a woman because yeah. like five percent of conductors are women Mm-hmm. And the fact that they've made the most famous fictional like movie of the last 50 years about a conductor, right? Like why couldn't they have just made it um, with a male protagonist? And because like all throughout history, the majority has been male, male conductors, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, to, and to make a movie that doesn't actually celebrate the conductor because you no, know, Lydia Tarr, the character, is vile. You know, and she's painted as such an awful um, human, behaviors, and yeah. like, and the fact that they had to choose a woman to play that role, yeah, when yeah. when reality is that um, most male conductors, kind of most conductors are male, and also um, the sort of awful behaviors that Lydia Tarr is made to do in the movie, it's the men who have done that. Mm-hmm. So for them to re- tell the story through the female lens just really kind of pissed me off because it's such a misrepresentation. Yes, of what actually happens, which is that yeah. men and also male conductors do what she does. Yeah, I know. 
And I also hated that because she's a uh, in the movie she's a lesbian character, and you paint a really, really horrible picture. I think of lesbians, yeah, of lesbians. Yep. And I really hate that. that yeah. It's, like you say, it's a really poorly represented sort of a narratives for all the bad things that male conductors did and they have to choose a female lesbian character to play this i know yeah i hate that when actually um when actually in real life it's like 99 percent of predators are straight men Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah um, I don't know where to leave from that, but should we just take a quick break? Okay. <laughs> we'll talk about a um, couple of uh, cultural consumptions that we've consumed the last couple of weeks. And here you go. We'll just we'll be right back. Hi there. If you're new to our show, thanks for tuning in into our program and we hope you will stay with us for a very long time. And if you're a regular listener, we're forever grateful for your continuous support throughout this period of uncertainty. It has really helped this podcast to gain a great exposure as our mission is to center the perspectives of people who look like us, who are marginalized historically to the sideline of conversation. So if you haven't already, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast on Omni, Apple, Google or Spotify and leave a rating and review. And of course, as a small podcast program, we rely on listeners' support to continue this work. Please do check out our Buy Me Coffee page and make a donation in order for us to continue to advocate the intersectionality in the podcast industry. Okay, so we're back. Um, I want to start off uh, to talk about one of the audiobooks that I listened to maybe a couple of weeks ago. I finished it within a week. So I've got the recommendation from Kevin Chen, one of my favorite Chinese author, to read um, Stay True by Hua Xu, the Chinese American or Asian American writer who supposedly, I think he works for New York Times or New Yorker. Um, I got the audio book um, in, I think, the end of November. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, it, was, it was actually read by Hua Xu himself. Um, it has a similar tone of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, even though that it's like a memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, I would divide the book into like three parts. The first part is him talking about him growing up as a Chinese American. Um, he gives me the sense that he came from a very well-off family because he's yeah. academics. Not saying exactly. that I'm not saying that all academics are very well off, but they had this. They were smart enough to study in the US. And when I think I think when I hear an educated um, parents, like you, any kind of university affiliated parents, I'm like wealth. Yeah, yeah, wealth because you need wealth to get. Educated. Yeah, yeah. And there's a large portion of him talking about music, bands, pop culture, his memories with his dad who used fax machine to communicate with him because his dad went back, returned to Taiwan when he was in like high school age to work in Taiwan. And 
that part felt a little bit unreal for me because I couldn't really feel real like resonated to it because um, it wrote a huge part about how he connected with his dad, how he they talk about their feelings, how they um, talk about ball games. Um, I, I feel really conflicted during this when I was listening to this part because it's such a rare version of Asian fathers who, you know, communicate so directly with their kids. But again, it's very, you know, it's, I feel like I vicariously had that kind of feeling that, oh, maybe this is the alternative parenting that I could have had, but I didn't. And mm-hmm. they share a lot about their lives. Um, the dad even uh, helped him with his homework, you know, having fax machine, because back then there wasn't internet yet. And fax machine was probably the best and the fastest way to communicate a really lengthy conversation without paying a huge phone bill because phone you know international calls were expensive too um bring back the fax machine yeah um Huashu also talked about a lot about fashion of that time cultural influences and movies so that was the first part and the second part and the final part is about um spoil alert uh next two minutes if you don't want to be spoiled you know skip this part he talked about the tragedy of his one of his a good friend who died from a robbery gun shooting um, incident. And uh, the final part is more of him that he's, he writes about like the healing path of him. And he wrote about the relationship with his college friend, Ken, which is the one who passed away. Um, they were not connected initially, but he took the liking of this guy because he was popular and he was very approachable. He welcomed everyone. Reminded me of Marx from Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Uh-huh. Yeah. And also because he's a Japanese-American as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a larger portion of his writing is almost like a healing path for him. And like he felt guilty, this uh, exploration of grief and self-questioning, like what could I have done if, you know, if I didn't just leave that night, you know, he will be still alive today. Mm. Um, I read the review. I don't know if I like this book or not. I know that the writing style is he articulates really well and some parts feel really lyrical and poetic, but I just found it hard to engage into the pain that he's trying to express. Mm. Mm. There's a lot of bittersweetness. Uh, feels more like a memoir that he's trying to dedicate to his friend. Mm. Mm. But then again, um, reading through the comments on Goodread, a lot of people who only gave two or three stars mentioned that he's kind of like self-absorbed. He writes about- <laughs> <laughs> he, he I writes- love that. I love bad Goodreads reviews. <laughs> he writes about yes. his journalistic trajectories. You know, he right. says, I'm writing my zine, like his yeah, yeah. magazines, you know. Uh-huh. It's, I feel like maybe that's a little bit too much. That's why that some readers even say that it's insufferable, his pretentious. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, so um, I have a few points to say to this, um, to your mar- marvellous uh, review. I have, I have been super reluctant to read this, hmm. despite Hua Su being a huge figure in The New Yorker. 
kind yeah. of presence, right? Because he's been writing for The New Yorker for ages. He's one of only a few POCs. Um, he's one of even fewer Asian writers, right? There's like um, the Chinese writer who's who's um, Yanqing something, um, who writes more exclusively about Chinese stuff. Um, and then there's Gia Tolentino, obviously, and then there's Huasu. And Huasu's essays I've never really gelled with Hmm. in the way that I've gelled with Gio Tolentino's um, because, yeah, I find that his um, writing is way um, more kind of elliptical. Mm-hmm. I feel like um, Gio Tolentino writes for my generation and also she writes from a deep place of being a woman. Yeah. Hwasu, you know, I feel a bit bad in no- not having thrown my support behind him 100% because he's Taiwanese. Mm-hmm. and I want to support Taiwanese people and I want to be able to relate to Taiwanese people. Um, but I've been so reluctant to pick up this book, which has been everywhere, by the way, in, in the last 18 months. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of white people love his writing. Yeah. Um, it's a really... Because it's really... <sighs> I, I know that we overuse this word, but I feel like it's really New York whiteishness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he is a very educated person. Mm-hmm. He basically went through all the channels of like elite, you know, elite, elite coastal yeah. um, uh, Ivy League schools. You know, I think he went to Princeton or something or Stanford. Okay, right? to- yeah, yeah. These people are of a certain milieu. Let's not kid ourselves. I mean, he works for the goddamn New Yorker. <laughs> okay. you know? Everyone, everyone there went to an Ivy League, you know. And the re- other reason why I've really not decided to pick up this book yet is because yeah I know what the content is about I know it's about grief and I just I'm like I'm like it's just like I'm rolling my eyes right now like nothing against grief obviously you know it's important to write about these issues but like I just like I've I I just like I'm so tired of grief filled stories Mm -hmm. like I'm just like just give me something anything that's like joyful or funny I, I think grief has become this kind of go-to content um, generator where, like, it's almost like you market anything and say, oh, this book is about grief and people will buy it. It's mm-hmm. almost like um, it's like catnip for 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 people these days, uh, this um, whole trope of grief. And I'm just like, oh, I don't want to learn about it. It's just so depressing. Maybe mm-hmm. I just, like, um, you know, when I open a book, I don't want to feel sad anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. And I feel like um, the last book that I read that made me decide I, um, I've had enough of this is um, Crying in H Mart, obviously, oh, you know, um, one of the saddest books ever. And I, after that, I'm just like, okay, no more grief stories. I just can't do it. It's just it hits too hard on me in in my chest. And it's just like I don't I don't want to be sad all the time. You know, I'm already sad without books. Mm-hmm. So, like, why would I want to keep being sad? I don't want to be sad. I don't want to be in these sad narratives, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and and also coupled with Huasu's very intellectual, you know, um, way of talking, I'm just like, nah, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the main thing is that grief has become such a big genre for the book literary industry. Yeah. Right. And people buy into that because... I guess as a human that you need to compare your sadness with someone else to feel like your life is a little bit better or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think so, yeah. People have that perverse need to, yeah, definitely. Um, But the thing that I 
don't feel like connected to Hua Xu's um, story is that he talks a lot about his college life. It's almost like a、mm-hmm. boy narratives. You know,、mm-hmm. we we hang out on the on top of the roof of our dormitory. We smoke, we drink, and I just don't feel that kind of engagement that we had. And just yeah, yeah. So it just don't feel resonated to it. I mean, the writing. So you. Yeah, I mean it's undeniable. He's a great writer,、uh, just not the kind of writer I res、uh, that resonates with me. Yeah,、mm-hmm. I, often when I find these people like Huasu, who is Taiwanese like me, it reminds me actually my most important identical identity marker is that I'm a woman. That is the most foundational basis for me when I connect with people.、Mm-hmm. Um, I don't care if you're from another country. Like、um, the 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 thing that Roots us in a sort of shared experience is the fact that we're women,、mm-hmm. and I think that's why I connect with Gia Tolentino's writing way more. Yeah,、um, male privilege, right? Yeah, men have way much more privilege than we do.、Um, so Helen, you listened to this on Audible.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, he read、nice. it for me as well.、Yeah. Was he? Was he a good reader? Reader, yeah. I think. Okay. Interesting. Okay, so I might do that one day when、um, maybe when I'm fifty-five and like. Open to grief narratives,、uh, so I、um, have been audio booking two books at、mm-hmm. the same time: one through my library, and one through Audible. And so、um, the first one I want to talk about,、uh, I'll talk about them quickly for two of them,、um, mm-hmm. is a book called. It's a memoir called "The Country of the Blind." It's by a writer called Andrew Leland.、Uh, I came across this book thanks to the New York Times Top Books of the Year. One of the editors mentioned it. Uh-huh. And she said that after reading this book, it will change the way you look at sight.、Um, I don't think it has. I don't really think about. I still don't really think about my like. I, I it hasn't changed the way I see the world,、um, and it hasn't been as profound as the editor said. But it's still like something I think is absolutely incredible.、Um, Andrew Leland has a rare mutation, a rare form of、um, retinal disease.、Um, Degenerative retinal disease. He's an Ashkenazi Jew. Um. Also, his wife is Jewish, and apparently, um, it's a higher rate of this kind of mutation found within th- that cohort of the society. And um, he started getting blind in his early twenties, and it got progressively worse. Now he's in his middle age. I think he's. I'm not quite sure how old he is, but he is. Um. I think in the mid. I think he's like maybe if I just search my. No, it doesn't say on Google. Doesn't say how old he is, but、um, he looks around fifty, forty-five, and he's almost going blind. And it's just—it's a memoir about、uh, blindness, about the way in which most of the world don't understand blindness.、Mm-hmm. Like people just think it's you're either blind or you're not.、Yeah. There's no like middle ground. Whereas he's like, well, most people who are legally blind actually can have a bit of sight, and.、Um, And the way in which most sighted people don't really understand the nuances of the disability, I think the most fascinating part of this book is the way in, is are the parts in which he actually deep dives the chapters where he deep dives into the technological advances that have been that have actually. That like the, the, the technological advances that we have sighted people and like the rest of the world have benefited from, and the way in which it actually started with、uh, disability, like、uh, it actually the technology for 
like smartphone and AI and all those kind of tech uh, devices that we use, like touch screens and voice activation and all those things that we kind of um, that Apple kind of brings out every few months. All of them began with blind people and like the blind activists pushing for better technology to make their lives easier. Mm-hmm. And um, th- like, for instance, um, audio descriptions in movies, yes. you know, sometimes, you know, you'll see a movie and they have captions, but not just captions, but audio descriptions. Yeah. Like um, th- all, a lot of these things that we now benefit um, actually began with um, blind uh, technology or engineers make uh, like designing things they were they were like the first innovators to have built these kind of very specific um, technology that in which sighted people and the rest of the world now benefit so i think that that those chapters were the most fascinating Mm. for me uh otherwise um yeah um, and i also i listened to this on audiobook and i think i don't know if andrew leland reads it himself I think he does. And yeah, it's a really easy read. Um, it's like five or six hours. So definitely recommend that if you want to learn more about like, um, what it means to be blind and that world. Yeah. Kind of, it made me think a lot about my favorite book of all time, which is, I mean, my favorite book of fiction is tomorrow and tomorrow, but my favorite book of all time, um, is, uh, Far from the Tree by Andrew Solomon. And that talks about, you know, dis- um, ch- parents of disabled, children and this uh the one chapter that it kept reminding me about was the deaf chapter so the deaf community and how cochlear implants are you know um a huge thing that 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 um sign language is a very important part of the deaf community so that is my recommendation for that andrew leland and my other audiobook was actually also a kind of memoir although it wasn't actually a memoir it was a book about Glossier, you're the fashion brand from America. It's called Glossy, um, and it's by Marissa Meltzer. And obviously, it's about uh, the inside story of Emily Weiss and the way she built her into the gloss uh, company from a blog into a multi billion dollar beauty empire. Have you heard of Glossier, Helen? I've heard of Glossier, but I didn't know about this book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I had never heard of Glossier. And it kind of shook me and made me realize how, in a way, I'm kind of proud, but it made me realize how uh, distant I am from the beauty world because it seems that everyone knows Glossier. And uh, I just, I think it's just because the fact that I'm just so not interested in beauty, you know, it's probably not, why I. Yeah, it's not something that we've invested our time into. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I buy beauty products, sure, but um, I don't. I definitely don't spend hours, like, you know, uh, reading, like, scrolling through Instagram, looking at the latest fashion or beauty trends. Mm-hmm. But uh, this book is about Emily Weiss and the company that she built when she was twenty-five. I think she started and. Mm-hmm. It's great. Like it's a very easy read. It's fascinating. It's interesting. A big dive into the beauty world. Uh, can also equally recommend that. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Okay. Um, should we talk about the films that we watched? In- yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start with uh, the one that you told me to watch. <laughs> yes. So this. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. This is, of course, Leave the World Behind, a Netflix film that dropped at the end of November that everyone has been talking about. 
uh, <laughs> I thought it was, I thought the first half was incredible and the second half was completely crap. Um, <laughs> as in, like, the storyline just went nowhere. I thought the ending was so jolting. Uh, it had a, for me, it had a very clear message the way it ended, which we'll talk about later. But um, Leave the World Behind obviously stars Ethan Hawke, Julie Roberts, Mahershala Ali, um, sort of post-apocalyptic work and uh, scenario dropped on Netflix. Uh, it kind of has the same uh, tenor as uh, Don't Look Up. So mm-hmm. Don't Look Up was about climate change. This one, who knows, it's about like cyber attacks, right? Mm-hmm. And uh and I loved the first half because it was so bone chillingly frightening because you like you just never saw the alien or the monster, which is ultimately what frustrated me in the end because I wanted to see something. I wanted to see an evil person, but we never got to see that. Mm-hmm. Uh and despite the second half of the movie being for me, really frustratingly um, not focused. I still absolutely loved this movie for the tension and the suspense that it had. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, it reminds me of the movie White Noise starring Greta Gerwig and Adam Driver last year, which is the movie that my husband hated. hated. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not going to, yeah, I just, I really can't stand Adam Driver, so I haven't seen it. Uh, so it's like a post-apocalypse uh, vibe, sort of the genre that where a family was having a holiday, trying to get away, and but then again, they are still deeply connected digitally. I think there's a large portion of the film that talks about the connection of digital in our human life where that we are as humans that we can just never can simply get away you know mm-hmm. because that's what the um what's the name amanda is that the character that julia roberts yeah played? the karen yeah she's trying to get away you know from everything because at the first you know the first five minutes she said that she's fucking she fucking hate people yeah. yeah um for me there's a lot of um things that I interpreted I don't know that you feel the same as well there was um I feel like the youngest character in the movie the little girl the daughter uh my interpretation of her character is almost as if that it's reflecting the young people the millennials or the gen z whatever you want to call it where she is very obsessive about tv sitcoms you know, we see throughout the movie she's obsessed with friends and she's obsessed with being happy. She needs to be happy, whereas survival for her doesn't seem like an is an important thing. Wow. Um, she is not there to survive, but she's there to seek the satisfaction of emotion. That's why she's obsessed with friends. She wants, constantly wants to watch friends and she wants to know what happened in the end. Mm. Uh, my interpretation of that, that she's confused with happiness and lust, like ultimately that she couldn't wait to f- satisfy that kind of emotion. Mm-hmm. And that kind of pushes them to make decisions to change. It's not like it's a bad thing, but at the same time, um, in the movie that you can see that it feels like that her selfishness prevails, that she only looked after herself. Pretty much. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Completely. She escapes from her family just because she wants to 
um, see the end of see the end of friends you know yep. and that motivated her to i don't know maybe stay alive i i'm mm-hmm. not sure whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing um but i feel like that that's the that's an interpretation that i myself got from that character what do you think of that what, what, what? yeah i um you basically said what my interpretation was which is that um the because like because the movie could have ended at any point the fact that it ended specifically when rose puts in the dvd and she starts the um friends annoying friends intro also i just i hate friends i've got yeah, nothing I for it I, I think i think people who love friends are super basic um <laughs> and um the fact that they stopped there mm-hmm. uh to me it was like glaringly the i don't know this is just my interpretation but i thought that the filmmakers were basically saying the people who survive in the end are the ones who chase their own happiness or like just doggedly chase their own um need to feel good and so rose was like i need to know what happened to rachel and ross and she actually in the end is at least the one who we know for sure survives mm-hmm. because she finds the bunker Oh, yeah. We don't know if like I I asked my, the people around me who I watched it with like do you think that the rest of the family survive and they were like they were like yes they do and in my head I was like no there's no guarantee of that because we never see that so mm-hmm. I reckon in the end because she's the clear guaranteed um sole survivor for me it was like a very hand-fisted way in which the filmmaker was saying to us um the person who survives apocalypse in the end is the one who's deluded mm. who's like delusionally driven to yeah. see what, what to 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 like chase whatever fulfills them mm-hmm. so like rose is the only one who is like really really sure about what she wants mm-hmm. which is you know from the get go she wants to see the end of the last episode of like yeah. of the series yeah. everyone else were like they're like not really sure what they want or whatever but like at least rose she knows what she wants and she goes and gets it and sort of like the for me the that was what the film makers were trying to say i wonder why they choose friends because it's basic i think it's basic and also it's something that really divides people you either love it or you hate it and we are the group that are you know we hate friends partly because that when we were growing up whenever the friends was on tv our dad kept saying that oh it's such a delusional lifestyle no oh, one oh really yeah yeah i remember oh okay i don't that. remember no one can afford such you know apartment i think that really drew into my mind of this is such a um not something that i aspire to it's like everyone's happy everyone's living in such a luxury you know new york apartment were they in new york i don't even know anyway it's in new but, york yeah yeah I, I, central park cafe that's right yeah and i've actually i think most of the my asian friends hate friends because it's it's contained a lot of racism throughout the whole you know i don't know 10 plus seasons racism unachievable unreal sort of lifestyle that people just sit around the cafe every day play music and there's no real work that's been done you know yeah um i just find ross annoying like he's all the worst the character who's all ever characters that been written david schwimmer is a wet blanket 
Um, I um, I'd like to bring in Billy Stevenson's take yes. on Friends. Uh -huh. He said to me recently, "This is the uh, TV film critic Billy Stevenson. Follow him at cinemamusicbooks.com." Pilot. Um, he said, "Yeah, the Pilot Club also. Yes." So he said, "He this is his theory on Friends, mm -hmm. um, and he kind of uses this explanation, puts this explanation alongside um, Seinfeld." So he said, um, "The people who love Friends are are." were the people in high school who were either in the cool group or who wanted to be in the cool group. Mm -hmm. Whereas like people who love Seinfeld are the, just like the misfits um. or like the people in school who just didn't fit in and were like, were not, were not kind of um, cardboard copy uh, people who didn't really fit in, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't really, I don't love either. Like I, I'm not a huge Seinfeld fan and I don't I really don't like friends. And so, um, I don't, you know, really match I, I, myself. I don't fit into this um, equation, but I really like his take on it mm -hmm. because um, I have seen people who love friends are a bit just like not my type of people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. Um, let's talk about the other characters. Um, I like the character GH and his interaction with his daughter where they're at the very the first part of the movie there's a lot of mystery i think the suspense comes from the unknown what is exactly behind this chaos uh in the world or in america and specifically in the movie he had a one line when where gh talked about his work um where he talked about a client of his is not learning their mistakes you know, mm. I think it's like an investment hedge fund or something like that. Something mm -hmm. to do with finance. Mm -hmm. And then the client loses more and not learning the mistakes that they have done with their investing behaviors. My interpretation of that, it's almost as it was reflecting on how Americans or general human beings does not learn as if that's like a human nature, like we keep making mm -hmm. mistakes mm -hmm. or have a certain sort of pattern that is very difficult to change. Um, and that kind of that would lead to miscommunication between us as in the echo chamber of our own community and someone, you know, might be more like Donald Trump, you know, we can never communicate with that kind of people. It's hard and I think that's probably the misalignment that the movie somehow is trying to talk about um, because it, it, the movie posts fun of conspiracy theories as well. There's a satirical narrative throughout the movie and also um, seeing what we cannot see, but uh, uh, seeing what we can see, but others cannot. There's like a scene, there's a one scene where uh, Julia Roberts picked up her phone and there was notification and the next moment she's trying to show her husband the notification mm. disappears. That was a that was a great scene. Yeah, and also the deer, you know, the animals coming out from That was the, annoying. Yeah. The deer thing was so fucking annoying. I was like, oh, enough with the deers. Yeah, it's almost like so ham fisted. Try trying to portray like a, you know, how human versus the animal the nat nat natural world. Yeah. And then that yeah. stupid scene where she and the uh, the black daughter Julia Roberts and the daughter and the other man's daughter were like yeah. screaming the head off. Yeah. I was like, this is just getting embarrassing. Yeah. Um, 
it's like trying to it is a symbolic moment where it's hard to communicate with another group of people that they don't have the same values or the same concept with you um and it's becoming harder in our current society because we end up trapped into our own echo chamber while um others trapped in their own echo chamber as well um that's what i thought about um when we can see what we see but the others don't see it i think that was something that the film was trying to say um again because this is an american film uh, i i just found it so funny that uh i think it's at the end of the almost at the end of the film where kevin bacon comes out as this you know the guy who the survivorist that yeah. tried to protect his own family i know what you're about to say but go on <laughs> okay that they start blaming other countries yeah wait but also did you notice that he made an error with oh, the languages what? remember when he was like oh this this um the pamphlet the red pamphlets that were printed out he mm -hmm. said that they were printed in russian and arabic and then he said mandarin oh yeah, yeah yeah and i was like that's actually that's, wrong it's yeah. chinese, chinese. Not mandarin. yeah i know yeah. yeah this is how poor that the production team that can i know i was like did they not have at least one culture check yeah I know. Mandarin it is spoken so weird. It's a spoken language. It's not yeah. a language. Yeah. Yeah. It's very funny. It's like literally it's just not one single Chinese person or like Asian could have like maybe they did it on purpose. Mistake. Or maybe they did it on purpose as in to uh represent how ignorant <laughs> that the character oh. is. Yeah, I want to talk about that, that how they usually will blame other countries, you know, in the movie that they reference Iran, they reference uh, Korea, they reference China. Mm -hmm. so it's always someone else is trying to attack yeah, the US. They wouldn't look at themselves and think about the shit things that they've done. Yeah. Well, it's America, so yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's my take on Leave the World Behind. Yeah. much and makes you think of a lot of things before we go okay. i want to talk about uh, something that's more lighthearted. is a small trend that is happening on instagram i don't think it's like a massive trend it's not something that's trending but i thought it was really fun um seeing a couple of the instagrammers that i follow there were three one's indian the other one Actually, the other two are like mixed race Instagrammers and they did this short clips about, oh, uh, we are something, something and therefore mm -hmm. something, something. And one of the mixed Blasian siblings, um, I just want to show, I don't know if I can show it to you, if I can share the, share the screen. You uh. love this guy. Yeah, I love this guy, Brandon. So, so he's half. Blasian. What is he half? What? We're Blasian. Both our parents beat us. We're Blasian. Why <laughs> don't black Asians don't race? We're Blasian. My nigga. What? My nigga. Blasian. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's another one. Uh, this one. Question or identity? Are you more black or Asian? We're mixed kids. People call us. Exactly. We're Mexicans. We don't know our respective languages. Oh my god, Shao! You're Mexican! Oh my god! You told me Shao! You told me Shao! We're Mexicans. 
everybody, okay? And yeah, so those uh-huh. are pretty funny. And I thought about if I do one as we're Taiwanese, what would you yeah. say? Oh, you know, that's so hard because I don't know what Taiwan. Uh, the only thing I think about is the, the line in Joyride where the woman's like, Taiwanese is like weird but cute. Oh, <laughs> do you remember? Yes, at the airport. I yeah. I, I think um I think we're like um very independent. Mm-hmm. Like as in um, we're always actively like, oh, we're not part of China. Yes. Right? That that's probably the, the real Taiwanese. The yeah. first one of the first things I think about. Yeah. Uh, I think we're, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what makes, yeah, what, what, what Taiwanese is. Like, like I, I mean, I guess apart from, apart from Chinese, you know? Uh-huh. I would say that we're Taiwanese. We carry our iconic Datong rice cookers wherever we go. The, you know, the, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Iconic, iconic. Yeah, the iconic one. And I'll say that we're Taiwanese. We speak at least one of the dialect. Like, we're mm-hmm. multilingual. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, we're Taiwanese. We have this love-hate relationship with our previous colonizers. Uh-huh. <laughs> like we have Japan. colonized by Japan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of occupied by the US, but it's, I, I don't think a lot of Taiwanese hate Japan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're Taiwanese. Our national drink is bubble tea. That's a bit simple. That's very basic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we're Taiwanese. Uh, I would say the convenience store is just like our kitchen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like a mandatory daily exercise of going to like a 7-Eleven or a family mart. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can't I, – I, I, I think because I, I'm not around a lot of Taiwanese people and I don't know like the – I've never – I haven't lived there extensively as an adult. I wouldn't know. And I'm also not online a lot, so I don't know what like distinctly mm-hmm. – makes yeah. us who we are like I, I think i can i'm better equipped at saying we're australian because yeah. what about australian? Oh, we're, i don't know we love beer more than water <laughs> we're obsessed with the beach um we uh get sun we got sun cancer skin cancer yes we get skin cancer um we're all bogans yeah i agree with the last one we're all bogans yeah yeah. Um, we love sport more than books. Mm-hmm. I do also wonder that whether or not that is kind of like a stereotyping group of people, but then of something it's really fun. But know? also they're true, you know, yeah, like true. every, every the, like the Asian one you wrote, um, you put on at the end, the way Asian because, and the two girls, like all of that was true for mm-hmm. us. Yeah, they're all facts. Maybe not the, maybe not the, the 20 shoes and all that is all true. Um, and the children complimenting, no compliments, we don't hug and all that. That's all true. Um, the, the newspaper, we don't do it at home, but I know that when we go back to Taiwan, our family does it. Like I know our relatives do that, put newspaper on top of the, on the dining, dining table. table. Yeah, yeah. It's like a table call. Remember, remember when we went to Taiwan a year, our pet, my, my okay. dad's parents, yeah, um, when we had sat down for a meal, our table, our, uh, our, um, tablecloths mm-hmm. table mats mm-hmm. our dining mats like the individual ones in front were like um brochures just like oh yeah, I think yeah, even yeah mom yeah. did this like as in like catalog brochures from the supermarket yeah 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 and when we were they'll lay that out 
Yeah. About that. Well, dad runs a travel agent, so he. Oh yeah, we use those brochures. Yeah, I still remember <laughs> that. Catalogs and yeah. them as into like little paper boxes. Yeah, as rubbish bins. Fish, fish bones. But also, I remember like ripping apart those brochures and putting them down as table mats. Yeah, place yeah. mats. We place cycle. mats. That's what I. We yeah, that's what I was looking for. Far before anyone else. <laughs> that's really comforting. I might remember to do that for our Christmas party when you guys come over. I just have to pop over to Flight Center oh, to get yeah. those brochures. <laughs> when we look at those beautiful pictures of other cities, and we dream that we want to travel there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um. So that's the end of our episode. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Google. <laughs> And Apple Podcasts and give us a five star rating. If you'd like to support what we do here, Asian bitches down under, head to Buy Me Coffee page and make a donation for us to continue the intersectionality of the podcast industry. So that's it from us this week and this year, and we'll chat to you next year. Stay Have safe. a good summer, everybody, or winter.